This is Included, the podcast. Conversations toward a greater understanding of the inclusive love of Jesus. Unpacking the mystery and wonder of the Word of God for those seeking an affirming, equitable Salvation Army for others. Thanks for joining. We invite you to take a posture of listening and exploring as we seek together the good news for the whosoever. Welcome to Included, the podcast. And today we're going to talk about the exciting topic of the missional impact or importance, the missional importance of dialogue and change. So we're going to talk about talking (laughs) and uh, what kind of impact that has in our context, in what we do, in our ministry and in who we are as well, of course. And uh, I'm really delighted to be joined by a group of people today. Um, but before I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves, I am um, I encourage all our listeners, and I'm really grateful. And from the included team, we've had some really great feedback on the sessions that have come out and the episodes that come out. And thank you for getting in touch. Um, it really means a lot to us, and uh, we are so grateful for the feedback, for the stories, for the reflections that we receive, but also to hear how. Um, you know, the podcasts and what the included um, page has done to help equip and resource the conversations around the world. And that's really what it's all about. You know, Uh, we've having parents who are contacting us, lots of people from the rainbow community, just saying their support and how helpful it's been. So thank you for your feedback and your response and keep them coming. Uh, Just go on the Facebook page and search for the included page and it will come up or you can go straight to the website and there's a way to contact us there and that's includedpage.com in one word includedpage.com so yeah just keep the feedback and thank you for um speaking to us uh, and uh, on that note I am Rebecca, who's speaking at the moment. Uh, I'm Rebecca Cottrell, and I am originally from Sweden, but I trained and served as an officer in the UK. And I'm currently in East London as a core officer together with my husband um, for Clapton Core with Stoke Newton Plant, which is very exciting. So um, I'm going to ask the rest of the group to introduce themselves as well. And I feel kind of entitled to do this. And I'm going to ask Richard to start because you're a member of my core. <laughs> So I feel like I can pick on you. <laughs> Is that okay, Richard? Well, that just means I've got to set the tone on how everyone introduces themselves. That's... <laughs> no, we can break boundaries <laughs> in this group. That's fine. <laughs> uh, well, yes, uh, my name's Richard. I'm um, uh, an adherent in the Salvation Army in the UK. Um, I've been most recently attending uh, Clapton Corps, um, but I've been all over the place. My you know, mum's an officer, so we've we've moved around a lot. And um, uh, Yeah, I'm here is the representative from a core. <laughs> Brilliant. And you also live on a canal boat, which is... I also cool. live on a canal boat. So if my internet cuts out and um, you ask me a direct question, I look blank. I apologise. We'll, we'll just assume that you drowned. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh. that's, that's sad. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. Who goes next? Well, I'll, I'll jump in next. I'm as I'm also in the UK. Um, So I'm Beth, I'm Beth Gibson. Um, I'm also in London um, and I go to Regent Hall, which is in central London on Oxford Street. Um, And I'm the youth leader there. I'm part of the leadership team. 
Um, and um, yeah, part of my ministry, I definitely feel, is learning how to be the best ally I can with my family and friends and core members and neighbours who are who are part of the um, LGBT community or LGBT people. Um, I'm also an employee at THQ. I'm in the comm service. I'm a member of our Territorial Moral and Social Issues Council. Um, and I also was recently a delegate, um, the U a UK delegate at the International um, Symposium on Human Sexuality. Right. And you forgot one thing. You're also part of the included team, Beth. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, sorry, how could I forget that? It's a great group of people, very blessed. Exactly. Oh, it's great. We're looking, mm -hmm. looking forward to hear a bit more about the symposium as well later. And uh, on the included team note, why, Katie, let's move to you. Yeah. Hi, my name's Katie Ryan. I'm from Australia. I'm a core officer in Melbourne area of Pakenham, and I work and minister on the land of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri people, and we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. So I've been the core officer here for now two years and God's up to some really cool stuff on the inclusion space. And I also was a delegate at the symposium representing Australia, which I look forward to sharing some feedback and, and having conversations around the importance of dialogue. So I'll pass over to you, Brad. Yay, last but not least. So I'm Brad, I'm also Australian. I live and work on the lands of the Muanina people in the beautiful island of Tasmania, originally known as Lutruita. Um, I attend, worship and serve through the Hobart Corps, uh, which is right down the bottom of Australia in, um, in the city down there. And during the week, um, I'm the Head of Community Engagement Programs for the Salvation Army in Australia. So I work at THQ as an officer. Brilliant. Well, thank you. So those are the ones who are in the studio today. And thank you for taking your time to talk, because that's what we're going to talk about. <laughs> and uh, we've got a real good spread of people, uh, you know, everything from local uh, core adherents uh, to people working in uh, THQ and in local context where we are. So context is important, isn't it, when we talk about things, and especially when we talk about mission, I suppose. So I'm just going to get straight in there and ask you a question, and then I'm just hoping that the conversation will flow, just like um, we would sit in somebody's living room with a cup of tea, which would be nice. Um, but in your context, if you want to think about this, so in your context, why is it that dialogue and change is important for mission? So talking about what we do, and as the Salvation Army in the 21st century, why is it that dialogue and change is important in your context? Is somebody brave to go first? I'd love that. <laughs> I don't have to pick on someone. I'm, I'm happy to be brave, and then you can all shoot. So that's great. Perfect. I actually knew this question was coming, so I jotted down a few reasons. Um, I think firstly we need to dialogue simply because we need to find a way to end polarisation on something that isn't actually central to our faith. You know, we're not talking about the divinity of Jesus or the resurrection. Um, so I think we need to do dialogue just to reduce polarisation in some areas of our movement. I think we need to be thinking well about how we operate in the world, so how we offer our services without discrimination, how we achieve the accreditation standards we need to continue to deliver services legally and funded and safely in many of our contexts. And I also think we need to dialogue and change before more LGBTIQ lives are destroyed. 
And I know that's like a really dramatic statement, but we need to get, it's 20 years too late. We'll probably come to that later, but we do need to get to it before there's more internalised homophobia, more moral injury, more conversion therapy attempts, more sacramentalised shame, more suicides. So lots of really big reasons why we need to be dialoguing and looking for change. Mm. Yeah, I think that that is so important, that last point you raised, Brad. Um, so I I think it, we need to be honest about actually when we're talking about um, protected characteristics, um, particularly in my context in the UK, what are protected characteristics in the UK? I think like sexuality and 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 gender are some of the <laughs> some of the actual things that we're particularly sexuality with opposition on on marriage um, and you know whether you can be in a same-sex marriage and be um an officer or a soldier this is like the only protected characteristic as far as i can see that we are explicitly exclusive like we are excluding people explicitly um in this area so we need to talk about it because yeah as far as i can see that 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 is an issue that is a massive issue that we're being explicit about there are other areas of inclusion that perhaps we, there are issues on but this one's a really explicit issue i think and um and for me personally in my local context about four years ago we went on a journey of vision and mission like review and we came up with this theology of welcome like welcome was the thing that was on people's hearts and thinking about the the the, the kind of a radical welcome of who god is and how that should affect how we do mission on a local context and as me and my husband were reflecting on the welcome of God so we could not get away from this conversation because this was the massive area which I felt we were just completely failing on because as Brad says people's mental health people's um ability to thrive within our church has been explicitly kind of closed down in so many contexts so for me um it's come from this theology of welcome in my local context. It means we can't not talk about this um, because people see the red shield badge in my context and they think we're homophobic. They, they see the policies, they see the positions and they feel excluded. And also recognising that we're not just talking about people that could be members of our church. And um, we, we particularly feel that within our context, because um, in the West End, there is the Soho community, which is um, sort of an LGBT community within central London. So that is our neighbourhood. So not just people that perhaps are not currently part of our church, but people within my church as well identify as LGBT. So this is a something we cannot ignore. We have to talk about it so that everyone thrives. Yeah, it's something that I found really frustrating is that I've always been really proud of how our church has been so um uh yeah, so welcoming and so accepting of everybody. We've been ahead of every single everything else that I can think of homelessness and, and community work and um, dealing with um, alcoholism and substance abuse all of that we are we've been ahead of the curve on everything and this is the one topic that we seem to be behind on and you know for like I've, I've written down you know that the dialogue will create change because it's through the dialogue that we're going to educate people and um, sort of help people to realize you know in in the church and out of the church we we're trying to kind of move forward on on this and we can only do that through educating people um one sort of leads to the other the dialogue leads to change um yeah my little two pence 
I love that you brought up about education because I think I was thinking in my context the significance of dialogue and the journey that my own faith community went on. And so for us, we did something similar that um, Beth was sharing with Regents Hall. For our call, we went through a whole process of looking at what does the wording we used was inclusion look like and inclusion to equity type stuff. And so I think the importance of dialogue is, I think, in human nature, with the absence of information, we replace it with fear and misinformation. So if we're not having a dialogue around education, a lot of people are filling in those gaps with misunderstandings of what they think it is. And we see this a lot in the faith community. As, as generations are being taught scripture and all these sort of things, for many of us we weren't taught um, critical thinking skills, so we were just handing each other information, but there was gaps in that space. And so when there's a gap, we fill it in with misinformation. And so what dialogue does is break down that misinformation and also that fear that we find. And for our faith community in particular, when we moved from the kind of obscure um, thinking of a person who is and then we were actually able to name oh, that person with a name, it really shifted the dialogue because no longer was it theory but it was actually a person in their life. And so I think to move us into change, dialogue helps that process go along. And I think for a lot of people, if you don't have the giftings and the abilities to see that which you haven't seen before, so like the visionary, you need someone to tell you what it looks like so you can see it, you know what I mean? And I think dialogue does that. It helps people see what we can be even though maybe for us we're a bit like, oh, I don't know what that looks like. So I think crucial, uh, I think dialogue is crucial to change. Without that dialogue, change doesn't happen. And I think, Richard, you said that beautiful line that dialogue kind of brings about the change. Mm-hmm. I think that's a beautiful space to be in and absolutely crucial. And I think, as Brad was saying as well, we need to have the conversations to bring that which is sat in the dark and bring it to light. And make it not scary, but actually normalise some of these conversations. You mentioned when when someone has a name, it changes things. And I love how sociologists will talk about uh, the the change that happens with proximity. You know, proximity changes perception. And when you name something or when you know somebody, when you have a relationship with a family member or a friend or a core member or a community member and you see the person before an identity or an issue, it changes everything. Totally. And I think that's the tension, isn't it? Because for some of us, we've been on that heart journey where we've had proximity and that's changed our hearts. Uh, And perhaps we haven't had the opportunity within our church and within the Salvation Army dialogue to actually change our minds on some of the things that we kind of just kind of passed on, like that misinformation, isn't it, Katie, that we've just been kind of assumed that this is the stance that we should have and this is the way we should think about stuff and it's the same like I think about the Black Lives Matter thing that's been going on um, and the white privilege you know like how we need to educate ourselves it's so important and um, I think what we're hearing from the response from what we're doing with the included team 
is that there's such limited kind of resources and opportunity for that dialogue to happen. Uh, and that's why like inclusion included team has kind of like sucked up that vacuum and uh, created this beautiful space, which is opening up and, and you know, spreading, um, which is fantastic. So um, dialogue does change everything, doesn't it? It really has that kind of um, power. Um, so thinking about dialogue, and I, I suppose one of the things that we can, I'd like to hear your thoughts on is, what is it that stops us from dialoguing? What's the blockers that we see, either for ourselves or within our communities when we talk about these things? What's the blocks? What's the stuff that hinders dialogue uh, and essentially stops change, <laughs> I suppose? Uh, what do you think? I think fear. Um, so people will see splits, like in the last couple of months, there's been splits in American Methodism. There's been in Australia a week or two ago, the conservative Anglican church pulled away from the rest of the communion. And people see that and they get scared. They think if we start to talk and this change, will the Salvation Army go the same way? Um, I think there's also, from the other perspective, the blocker of being part of a hierarchical international movement where almost all of the decisions about our community and attempts at dialogue are governed by straight married men in another country. And that becomes a blocker to dialogue, let alone inclusion. Yeah, I think this idea of control is a really interesting one, which I'm wrestling with quite a bit. Um, there's the idea of, on the one hand, we want to have a conversation, but on the other hand, we want to control the conversation and put boundaries on it. Um, now, in some perspectives, I can see that there is a genuine desire to be helpful within that because the idea of protecting people and kind of um, uh, and and making sure that there are is the respectful conversations and conversations are happening in the right way, right way. Um, as if you know who's deciding what is the right way. I think that's a massive question. But um, but yeah, I think there's this tension between I'm fearful of what your conversation might do to me, but there's also this fear of. I'm worried the conversation's going to get out of hand and people are going to get hurt. And I think um, that's something which, coming back from the symposium, I can kind of can see this tension really, really kind of like being played out. Um, there's this, there's this really, um, there's this fear of um, kind of conversations not happening in the right way, either being secret, being public being managed properly and facilitated and and other people looking on and, and and kind of not being able to access the conversation or um and 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 it's just I can I can see these tensions and so some people will be like well it's easier not to do it and some people are going well no it needs to be done in a different way and I think in lots of ways we, we're kind of we're kind of stuck in this um yeah, who is controlling the conversation, who has access to the conversation, how is the conversation being managed? And I think um, one of the things that I saw in, in, in at the symposium is there was a lot of effort within the within the context. Obviously, it was a private context. There was lots of people from around the army world. There was 120-odd people, delegates from all over the Salvation Army world coming together. And the first couple of days, you know, the main aim was about dialogue, bringing people together to talk, and then um, sort of 
feedback from from kind of these discussions was was is is being relayed to international leadership not recommendations at such but just the highlights from the conversations but a lot of preparation was done in grounding these conversations and creating safe spaces so like how do we um how do we how do we disagree well like lots of preparation done around that how how can we can we be curious with each other rather than being defensive um and and so loads of groundwork was done in trying to create this right space for dialogue so i think the point i'm making is that there's it's not just a lot of times people aren't saying, oh, let's just have a conversation. There's there's the fear of how do we make sure we have a conversation the right way? How do we manage expectations? How do we not hurt one another? How do we, you know, but then there's also the political aspect as well of who is controlling the conversation? Where are the boundaries? And I can just see it's it's complex. And I can see all the different views within that. Um, so some are coming from a good place and some are coming from a kind of more cynical control place that I don't want the change that could come out of this. And I'll, I'll stop talking there. <laughs> I think um, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I think education again, because, you know, those people that are the ones that are in control of the conversation are the ones who've been brought up in a world where being gay is wrong. It's, it's, in, it's in the Bible that it's a sin. They were taught this from the people that were stood at the front preaching when they were children. And, and I think that... Um, you know, Rebecca, you said about um, how important context is. Well, you know, the context of when this was translated or when it was written or all this sort of thing, all of that compared to the context of today. But that doesn't matter because in, in, in the heads of many people, not just not even just Christians, but people in the world, being gay, they've been taught is wrong. So why would they have a conversation about it? And, and that kind of feeds like the, the idea of well, what's the goal of the church? Well, the goal of the church is to save people from sins. Well, if you are being brought up in a world where being gay is a sin, then having a conversation about how we can accept people who are in the LGBT community isn't something you want to happen because as far as you've ever been taught, as far as you've ever known, that's something that we're supposed to be fighting against. And so again, the, for me, the, the thing that's holding back this dialogue that's going to come to this change is a lack of education in terms of what, um, you know, what does the Bible actually say? What what should we have been preaching all along that we haven't been because of the context of the world that we were living in at that time and at the time it was translated or written or um, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna be saying the word education a lot. I feel. <laughs> no, I think that's good because I mean, where would we be if we weren't informed, right? And. I think what we are dealing with when you zoom out is like this massive paradigm shift and it, it you know it infiltrates a lot of things about um what we think about the bible how we interpret that how we live out our faith what we believe is a human and um where god fits into all of that so i mean living in that paradigm shift that we are in at the moment um it's a huge thing that we need to recognise and that will have impact and, and will stop conversations. And, um, of course, it will um, hinder the freedom that sometimes comes with it. I don't know, what are your thoughts, Katie, who also have been on the symposium? Because you would have kind of been head-on straight with these questions, talking about dialogue, a massive mix of cultures and people uh, all sat in a room together talking um what what would you say what was your reflection um i think if i think in the context of the symposium a space that stopped dialogue is we didn't start at the same space 
And so our starting ground was so different. And so as we um, unpacked our cultural settings and where we come from, for some countries, the big issues are still divorce. And so they're way back in the divorce conversation. And for some spaces where um, it's a crime or, or there's the legal stuff around it, they don't even want to touch that dialogue. So the context in which they come from stopped a lot of the conversations going deeper into certain issues. And then also you had so many different understandings of the role of women and men and um, just even for some spaces rank was so important and other spaces it wasn't. And so with so much complexity to what our context looked like, I found like that sometimes we couldn't find a starting ground. So for me personally, I was surprised by something which I thought was quite simple as when is someone a child of God? We couldn't even agree that. And so then you go, okay, how do we how do we move forward when we kind of are all starting in this different space? And I think um, if I move to my current context and some of the lessons I've learned from what stops dialogue, I think really Beth was was hitting on this as well that the symposium really tried to do was safe spaces. But the problem is making authentic safe spaces is hard work because it requires people to be brave and courageous, to be okay that they might look silly or they might not have the opinions of other people. And sadly for a lot of people, we're not courageous by nature. Like (laughs) we want that spirit of courage and boldness, but it actually takes bravery to start dialogue and to have someone step out and, and make authentic spaces where people can actually speak their mind freely. And I think something we love to celebrate in the Savage Tsunami is diversity until it comes to thought. We don't know what to do with diverse thought. So we love diversity until we think different. And I I just think really around that catchphrase we throw around a lot that we want unity but not uniformity, the problem is we don't know what that looks like. And so I think that actually creating safe spaces stops a lot of dialogue from happening because when you don't feel safe, you're not going to bring your honest self and honest opinion. So that's something uh, in my context we've had to work really hard with not even topics but just safe spaces so that Mm -hmm. there is that foundation for dialogue. And I think going on to safe spaces, I think we we recognise there are some spaces that really aren't safe um, and we see people getting hurt. I mean, for example, social media is an example of something that's really hard to make that safe on there. But people, because there aren't any other outlets, that is where people are often going at the moment and they're wanting to have the dialogue on social media. And I'm and I'm finding this really difficult because, I've again, I've come back from something as seemingly significant as the symposium, but I am scared about talking about it on social media because I am worried about how safe that space is for people of every kind of different um, opinion on this topic, that I, I would feel worried about suddenly opening dialogue on a space like social media and then it not being appropriate and safe and it gets out of hand. So I think, yeah, this, this understanding that, whether you're doing it on an international level, which obviously Katie and I have some experience of now from that, from what we've gone to, or whether you're doing it on a local level, how you do the dialogue, I think is one of the really 
things that we shouldn't we shouldn't just say well let's have a conversation let's let's kind of make it it's, it's easy I think there is the understanding that it it isn't easy we should work harder to having good conversations but it doesn't mean that we should then bury our head in the sands we still need to have the conversation but we need to realize that we need to do it there's a there's a there's perhaps a right way to, to kind of go about it or attempting to move in, in that direction of, of creating safe spaces even if we don't get it right every time um i want to sorry you go brad i feel like you had some wisdom to bring <laughs> i doubt it more anecdote but it's all good um and it was on that word safety because I think we get beaten back as well. If you stick your head out, you know, I'm in a situation where I'm an out gay man in leadership in our territory. And that means that for those that discover or want to target somebody, um, the safety is reduced sometimes. And, you know, just today, I got a letter um, from someone I've never met before decrying my apostasy um, and, and you know, calling me back to the true way. So that, that question of safety um, is really significant in dialogue. And, and just just a reflection on what you've just said, Brad, because I've, as someone who is a cisgender heterosexual person, I I really struggle with what's my role in creating safe spaces, and actually, um, like, and I've heard this play out in lots of different contexts, and and actually with the symposium, one of the big questions there has been how many members of the LGBT community, how many LGBT people were actually in the room. And I can also see this tension between actually some people would say, well, actually, no, it isn't that protecting because you don't know what you don't know what kind of is going to come out in that space and actually the need to protect people. Um, but I then feel challenged by the fact that who is it for me to decide on behalf of LGBT people? Like we can we can try and we, we need to make safe, try and make safe spaces where those can be respectful conversation. But I think there is also that, again, that that tension of control. If you're trying to create safe spaces by controlling things and saying who can't be in and who who can be in and who can't be in the conversation. Um, so, yeah, so my, my reaction when I hear people that have experienced unsafe conversations is to just want to protect them from all conversations and not let them be be exposed to anything that could be harmful um and and, and, that, and, that, and I think sometimes I say some people might be coming from what they think is a good place by I'm creating this safe by by not having someone who's going to get hurt in the room but actually again that's a power thing like you're then you're then deciding on behalf of that person um instead of standing alongside them um you are you are putting your they're outside the room so i think that's also that's an interesting point you're the saying brad that actually, yeah it's a real thing that people are getting hurt but then how do we respond to people getting hurt and the risk of people getting hurt i think is important standing alongside and when I was thinking about this conversation and how we're talking about dialogue and whether dialogue leads to change, whether, you know, all that sort of stuff, I had this moment where I thought, imagine in our context anyway in Australia, if we had this conversation in the 80s or 90s, imagine if it was the 80s, it was the AIDS crisis, the decriminalisation laws were out and all that sort of stuff. And 
the Salvation Army or the church in general had journeyed alongside the marginalised and hurting during that period. We'd had the dialogue then and we had become the people that had shown the compassion to the world at the time when the LGBT community probably needed it most in our country. What now, 40 years later, would be a difference? Um, and, and I think inadvertently it's been among the many things that has led to the loss of a generation in our church. And it's going to take a, gen, you know, if, if, we, if we think dialogue is going to change things, it's, it's not going to change things immediately. It might help, I think, some of the LGBT people that have hung on. Um, it'll help them in the short term, but I think it's actually going to take a generation almost of explicit inclusion for the perception in the broader community to change. Yeah, I think on that note, um, just from my space looking at, we work really hard to talk about acceptable culture. And um, one of the things that if we look back on our, our original question is what's stopping dialogue? I think in the Christian world is this pray it away thing when we're uncomfortable, right? We, we bring up something uncomfortable and we haven't actually learnt to sit in the mess and be uncomfortable. We quickly have to pray about it. And actually that devalues that person's experience so quickly. And so for us in our current context, we're working really hard to actually say, no, let's just sit in the mess right? Let's sit in the uncomfortable and see what God does in that. And I think what you're saying, Brad, is absolutely right. Sadly, we're not going to tomorrow wake up and bam, everything's changed. But my prayer is we will fight this fight and, and instill these values and cultures so that my children will be in a church where they know how to sit in the uncomfortable. They know how to have dialogue and not agree because we've done the hard yards. So absolutely, there's sadness in what we could have done, but I think there's still incredible hope in where we're going and I, I can see that in the included teams doing amazing stuff but definitely when I think about stopping dialogue, one of the biggest stoppers is when someone shares their heart and then someone quickly, oh, we'll pray about it. Well, actually, yeah, God's in this. We don't need to cover it up with a prayer right now because God's in that conversation, right? So that's that's another key thing that I found that kind of stops people's hearts. It's funny because you've uh, you've all preempted my next question as well. <laughs> In the the themes, there's so many good themes that's coming up. I'm hearing, you know, uh, lots of future episodes of what it means to uh, to create safe spaces and how do we safeguard specifically um, what it means to be an ally and all this kind of stuff. And uh, and what the question I was coming to was about time. And the issue of the pressure of time, you know, and I think that kind of echoes in the general's letter last year that we saw was that we need more time to talk about this. We, more, we need more time to think and to, to journey together. And um, we can't read. We're not at the point yet where we can start discuss change as such. Um, but how does that really sit with us? Um, I'm already hearing some stuff from you, Katie, you know, as in. What do we do with that? Because, and I think I want to acknowledge this, we are in a global international context here in one sense, even if it's UK, Australia, but we've got listeners from across the world uh, who are tuning in. But in your contexts, which we are seeing in this room here now, um, where does that sit with us? 
Katie, it looks like you're about to jump off your chair. So. <laughs> well, this, is, this is definitely something. It doesn't something sit with you, I take it. <laughs> no, no. And I think for me, it's the way I kind of think about it is the kingdom of God, right? It's here, it's here but not yet. But it doesn't mean we stop working towards it, even though it's not here. You know, it's this weird paradigm thing that, yes, there are some situations it's not time for the dialogue, but there are other situations, like Brad has said, we should have had the dialogue years ago. So I I think it's not one or the other and or. I think it's both. Like there needs to be dialogue and there needs to be change. There needs to be action with the conversation. I don't think we can wait till we have all the answers because I don't think there's any circumstance where you can have everything and then move forward. So for me to have this conversation and say we need more time, I think, well, probably not. There's always time for dialogue, but there's, I think it's dialogue and action that is required. Any other thoughts on that? Education. <laughs> no, um, no uh, I was. <laughs> uh, I, I don't shoot me down. But this is something that I, I I've talked a lot about with various people because I think, whilst I don't like it, I can respect to an extent that we can't go right. This needs to happen now. We need to make this change now. I can get that because I think I've. I know I'm an out gay man. I came out when I was about sixteen, seventeen. Um, I'm now nearly 30 and in the grand scheme of things that's not a very long time but I've always been very lucky in that whenever I almost any core I've gone to there's going to be one or two people that will have a bit of a dig but everybody else has been very welcoming very accepting I've felt loved um, so I've been very lucky and I know lots of people haven't had that um, and so I can understand why they want something to change now but I think if we're going to get if we're going to get where we want to go it is going to be a slow process. Yes, it should have already happened, but it hasn't. So this is the position we're in now, and we we have to take our time to make sure that people are educated and that people understand the the, the context and everything. We've already I've already said because I'm repeating myself. Um, but to 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 be an international, wholly inclusive, everybody's on the same page. That is going to take time. Um, I, I disagree with the idea that there's no time now. To, this isn't a time now to be having the dialogue. We should definitely be having the dialogue. But that doesn't necessarily mean that change is right around the corner. It's something that is going to take a while. Um, and, yeah, I, I personally have, all, have, have said to various people, do I like that I can't get married in my church? No. Do I like that I can't be a senior soldier? No. But I can understand why we are where we are mm. at the minute. And it's up to us to try and push that forward, but to realise that it isn't going to happen tomorrow and we're going to have to, it's work, we're going to have to put work in and it's, everyone's going to have to put work in. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. But hearing you say that, Richard, like I, I find that really, I find that really hard. Like, why should you, why should you have to wait? Um, yeah. Why, why should people have to wait to find fullness of life, to thrive within our church? Like, it's not on. And, and I, I don't think we, we, we even, if, even if there is some change that is out of our control, there is change which is in our control. And how we behave on a local level, 
um how how we behave like so if we're having the dialogue i think every, like for me every dialogue we should be seeking at the end of the dialogue okay how am i gonna how am i changed from this conversation like yeah that we might not be in positions of power that we can we can influence the the, the big changes the policy changes but if we're having the dialogue every dialogue should lead to transformation of our hearts as we seek god to give his wisdom to us and 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 i one of the things that like I'm I feel really wrestling with in a local context is um while while my my the institution is not changing and my local context there might be lots of affirming people within it um I I do feel really overtly aware of um that for some people like um the message I might have to give some people is that is to signpost them to other spaces which have changed, <laughs> like other churches in London that are really safe spaces, openingly affirming spaces. Because I think, I think while we are talking, that we have to we have to acknowledge that that is not quick enough for some people. Some people like we shouldn't be saying. I, I feel that yes, we need to empower people to make their own decisions. And and you know, Richard, like I I, I like absolutely kind of admired and, and inspiring kind of the way that you are pro have processed it and are processing it and living in that space but but for some people like I think we need to give them permission and, and be honest with ourselves of where we're actually at and not try to sugarcoat it and pretend that oh just because we're talking things have changed because for some people that you know they're going to get to that point where they they hit that barrier and someone even if it's not local like there's there's people in the UK who um, their core and the people around them affirming and loving them and and they are kind of wanting to see the change but then then higher up the hierarchy someone else comes in and hurts someone and so I think we need to be honest about kind of where we're at I think that, that's what I'm saying is so that we're not kind of trying to well we should we're, we're talking about it so it's okay I think we still need to we need to keep going with the conversation but we need to be realistic about what that means for people now and actually in sometimes I can I can see that sometimes the most loving thing that I can do in some places is be honest about that and 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 empower people to make their own decisions about are they going to stay and live in that space or, or 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 actually could we signpost them to somewhere else where like you know Oasis Church comes to my head in the UK they are a massively affirming group of people who are really outspoken about their inclusive policies on on this topic um, and that might be the place that they thrive and it might not be the Salvation Army that they can thrive in at the moment. I. This is going to turn into a mutual admiration society for a moment, but I'm just so touched by Beth's passion. Um, I'm just, yeah, thank you for sharing and thank you for sharing so passionately. Um, you're right. And as you were speaking, I was thinking of those people that are in affirming court and they're totally enveloped and loved and supported. And then it gets to that point that Richard alluded to where, well, can, can I marry my boyfriend? here because this is my faith community and it all breaks down because someone has to have that heart-wrenching conversation where no I'm sorry um, and it's really fragile the safety is really fragile I was talking with our, our TC recently who's very supportive and very affirming and he, he was restating his affirmation to me and I said you know I was grateful but I had to remind him that we're one, you know, all the general needs to do is send us a conservative territorial commander and that one decision changes the landscape for all of us. Um, and we're back to square one, you know, it, it all goes out the window. 
The other thing that I was thinking about as you were speaking is the dialogue has to continue to explicitly emphasise inclusion. And the main reason is that for, for a community that has experienced explicit exclusion for generations, until we're stating explicit inclusion, it will never be believed. Um, so I, I was reminded of that. We went through an accreditation process a little while ago in Australia. Uh, we, we're in an environment, we mentioned protective qualities before. Uh, we're in an environment that our social programs have to be accredited to operate and we have to be able to demonstrate that we can provide a safe space for people from all communities. Otherwise, we simply uh, can't work in certain sectors. We won't get funding, the whole works. And, um, you know, we were talking about two things in that space. One was how explicit our inclusion and our dialogue around inclusion and our visibility, our rainbow flags, our badges, our icons on our emails. They have to be there just to send the message that we are shifting. Um, but also the other thing we really worked through as a group in that space of accreditation was the dialogue can become tiring, and this might lead the conversation in another direction, but the dialogue can become really wearisome for people that feel like we've been banging on about this for years. So how do we look after ourselves in that dialogue? And I'm putting that out there. I don't know the answer, and it really drives me nuts, and I just get exhausted and think I'm going to give up. So how do we look after ourselves in that dialogue? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think the um again thinking about the um the symposium, like I as you can you know, a week, seven days, all in the same place, talking for, you know, the, the as I say, the small group, small group discussion was central to the week, where we we uh, sometimes up to you know more than three hours a day, we're meeting with people from across the army world at, in a small group and, and having this conversation. And, and I, I physically exhausted at the end of it, right? And so now, as someone who went, I know, I know, I can't imagine what it's like for people who have, you know, obviously weren't there and were anxious to know what happened, etc. Um, but obviously, the thing is, I, I'm now, I'm like anxious. Oh, so, so what? what? What's coming? What's coming next? You know? And 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 there's a lot of, I, I I don't know what's coming next. Like, I don't know what's coming next. And um, I know the international leaders are talking in September they're talking in September we know they've talked before the generals talk you know but they're talking and now in light of the conversations that were happening here like you know they were here or this is the things that salvationists raise as issues or things they're struggling with or their kind of ideas or concerns you know they'll, they'll hear that and they'll talk about it some more so another group is going to talk about what we talked about <laughs> and what you know what came out of that but like we know also that what the current general thinks about this and he, he you know he, he, he put that very strong letter so then it's like well are we then waiting again you know this idea of waiting you know are we waiting then for a new general uh, you know and that will be next year so okay that's another that's another milestone and there'll be another milestone another milestone and actually you're so right like let's have another conversation about conversation and i think we do need to there has to be a point where actually something happens. We can't endlessly have conversations. And again, I think what we're finding across the army world, and I know in Australia and the UK, we're finding this, people are tired of these conversations. They have reached their limit and now they have left. And, and I think that's one of the things that we, 
we were kind of we, we those of us who are kind of are from affirming perspectives you know or personally feel you know very strongly about this so the direction of travel we, we hope we can go in is that we are running out of time you know our territories are getting smaller officers are leaving people are leaving you know they're, they're, they're going to other churches we're worried about is there going to be a savage army in our, our territories in the next 20 years time like so actually we need someone to be brave to say yes we're not going it's not that we're going to stop the conversations we'll keep having conversations but we do need to start to see some change otherwise i don't know how much longer a lot of people are going <laughs> to going to be able to wait for and it's a frustration when some of our young people don't even get why we need the dialogue they have their, their mindset their context is so far beyond and i i, I was really um fascinated our, our core officer john mark um he's from the uk um actually was preaching a few weeks ago and he said in his message there are so many areas where as older people, we get wound up about the direction things are going or whether we need to have a dialogue or whatever. Our kids have already moved on. They just don't understand why we don't get it. Um, they're already way beyond the space that we're trying to get to. Totally. And, I mean, the sense of urgency for some of us, but then the sense of comfortableness within that generation and actually maybe it's a, a shift of focus as in how do we safeguard that generation to 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 be who they are and it's wonderful when we meet with our generation said people um between 20 and 30s and they're like why are we even talking about this <laughs> like this is not an issue let's just go on with life you know this is uh which is wonderful and i, I think you know growing into that moment in time and um, thinking actually these are the people that we need to safeguard that their voice and their experience of life and their freedom of growing up in societies where they've been able to exercise that freedom and for some of them also having had that kind of uh, affirming uh, sense within the local churches is amazing and and it's about you know keeping that happening and and multiplying that as well um conversation is tiring isn't it it's, it can be difficult when there is no end to it or when there's no action seen into it I, i'm hearing those themes in in what you all say in, in many ways is there anybody who'd like to add anything else onto that question about time <laughs> uh, urgency obviously it's different in the different contexts but there are places where there's a real urgency and I think it's easy to downplay that by saying well but the rest of the world are not there yet <laughs> well even if the rest of the world are not there yet there are places where we end up being where we are and we don't have time anymore uh, time's run out a long time ago and um, dialogues happened <laughs> it's happening and what's needed is kind of the next steps um, which is um, what we not just praying about, but pushing for and vocally and um, being, yeah, who we are in all ways. Any other thoughts? Or I will just uh, start kind of wrapping up the conversation because I think we've had some really beautiful moments. Um, it's wonderful when there's space for dialogue and there's no uh, perimeters out to 
what can be said and what can't because that when we see we see ourselves and we see our passion we see who we are and uh, I thank you for for bringing that to the table I'm just wondering um if we can kind of end on this one final reflection and even if change is not possible perhaps in this moment um what is it that we can do let's just be really practical uh, you know, about whether we are an ally or part of the rainbow community so we can leave our listeners who are tuning in thinking, what do I do with my missional context? You know, uh, how can I, how can I, you know, practice being a welcoming, inclusive, affirmative person towards the rainbow community um, or within the rainbow community? Um, what can I do in my context? Um, so I'll just leave you with that to kind of, Share some hope with us. What do you think? <laughs> um, I'm waiting for Richard to say education. Because um, <laughs> yeah. I actually think that's one of the key things. Um, educate yourselves. Learn about queer history. Learn about the other agencies in your community that serve with that community. Um, get to know them. If you're an officer out there, build relationships and do people's funerals and dedicate their kids and just invest in their life and, you know, speak out against harmful practices where you see them, have dialogue where you can um, and just allow um, the queer community to find their place in, in and among the people of God. Um, yeah, build relationships and educate yourself. Yeah, yeah, that that's yeah relationships. I think that that's beautiful, Brad. And I, one thing that I am bringing back from Singapore, where the symposium was held, and I'm going to share with my leadership team, and um, based on what I've just said about the theology of welcome, that being really important for us in our local context. Um, uh, Coralie from New Zealand shared a beautiful presentation about how we can kind of um, embrace people um, who are different to us and, and be generally generally more welcoming. And she talked about um, deep access and wide spaces. And this, this, this was a beautiful image for me. And I think um, at my core, we've gone on a journey of creating wider acts, wider spaces and deeper access for people. So we have diversity, not uniformity in our local context. So that means opening up our musical groups. You know, you don't have to be a soldier to participate in this local context. Um, but I want to see that go further, you know, different types of leaders within our churches. So if, if, if we know where the problem areas are specifically on, on LGBT issues, soldiership and officership there are barriers there we need to be honest about that perhaps we could also work harder opening up our churches and so we're not just having a narrow point of access for people you have to look and behave like this in order to belong let's 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 broaden our view of who god is and how his welcome is practiced within our churches let's open up the spaces let's have different people preaching and teaching um people wearing different stuff, people, different types of groups. Let's let's make the access and the spaces wider um, because I think we'll get a better view of God and his kingdom if we do. Uh, so for me, I think the, I would say use your platform um, because I think the thing that I really uh, latched onto what Beth said earlier and um Others have said it as well. You said, um, who am I as a, as a cis, cisgender, heterosexual, married woman to have any control or any power in this situation? Well, actually, yes, you do. You do have power because you are in a position as a soldier in the Salvation Army where you can say to other 
soldiers, hang on a minute, what you're doing right now isn't, you know, isn't what our, our, our message is, isn't what our mission is for. You know, don't be stubborn about it. Like, don't, don't shy away from a confrontation because it's a confrontation. Because actually, and, 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 you know, don't be afraid of political correctness. That's another one that really gets me. It's like, actually, if you are standing there and you said something like homo or whatever, if, you've, if, you, if you're saying it because you don't know, if you're using whatever word you're using and you don't know that it's politically incorrect, it's better that you've said it because you've made a bit of effort. And I can go, that's not the politically incorrect term to use that. Or that, that's quite a confrontational term to say that because you've made a bit of effort that's going to have a bigger impact on how I feel about being in this space than if you just don't talk about it at all. Um, you know, I've, I'm, I'm very stubborn. I, when I came out, my, my family was very accepting, my church was very accepting, and my biggest issue was in the back of my head was saying, well, I've been brought up with this is what a family unit should look like, this is what a good Christian life should look like, and it took me a very long time to sit and be really stubborn with myself and say, well, hang on a minute. I believe that God doesn't make mistakes and God is all knowing and all loving. Therefore, he isn't going to make me a certain way and say, I can't be that way or say that I shouldn't, I can't be happy being that way. So something's gone wrong here. I'm going to have to be really stubborn and really push through that to work out, okay, this is where I fit in God's plan. Therefore, the person that tells me I'm wrong to do that, they're the one that isn't paying attention. And you need to be really stubborn in your setting and sort of, hold out on okay yeah maybe there's another church that's going to be more accepting but if i leave this church then this church isn't going to get any more accepting because the person that is going to be pushed driving that forward is gone um i had a conversation with someone who said that they were they were considering coming out of uniform because being a soldier they didn't agree with enough of what the service was saying on this particular topic that they felt that was how they were going to they could um protest it I said, no, be stubborn with it, stick with it, stay in uniform and be that soldier in your corps that says, I'm a senior soldier, um, I've been in the church for however long, and this is right, this is the way that it should be. Um, yeah, use your platform and stick to your guns. I love that idea of stubbornness. Stick to your stubbornness. I love it. And I was trying to think what that old catchphrase was. I couldn't remember the wording, so I'll probably get it wrong, but that idea that you talk about, you know, the behaviours we walk past are actually the behaviours we accept. And so if we continually allow things to happen, so if we, the question being what are some little things we can do, if there is even a language like um, we were just saying then and Richard was just saying, you know, be brave enough to say actually we don't say that here, we don't accept that, or those simple things like when there's jokes that are not appropriate, like, we think we need to tackle the organisation and actually change can happen in those small little conversations. So if a joke happens that's actually about a gay person, actually be brave enough to say, we don't, we don't say those jokes here, that, that's actually not okay in this space. Or um, Australians are very bad at, at some of the sayings we have that are quite derogatory. And so for Aussies to be able to say we, we don't use that word anymore can make big changes in our um, environments. Something else I was thinking about too in the education space, I'm on your bandwagon, Richard, education, but also being really intentional with what we're reading. Like are we reading books that are written 
by gay people or trans people or non-binary people? Are we listening to podcasts that have those spaces? Theology that it's written by those things. So not just studying the queer theology, but just hearing voices and people's experience from from worldview can can help us change and understand bigger and not to get all Christian-y on us, but I'm going to. I really encourage you. Sometimes I think we forget that we're not followers of Paul. We're not followers of that, that, that. We're followers of Jesus. So if if you're listening to this podcast and you're a bit lost, you're not feeling hopeful, can I encourage you get back into the Jesus stories? Because Jesus was constantly pushing back against society norms in a way that was loving and inclusive. And sometimes we get so lost in church stuff and politics that we forget at the end of the day, Jesus simplified all of that. Jesus brought the world of anxiety and brought us into peace, shalom, by loving God, loving others as ourselves. And so if you're in that space, I encourage you to get back into Jesus' stories to be reminded. At the end of the day, that's what we're here for, right? To serve Jesus and love others. That is my sermon done for you all. <laughs> Preach it, sister. <laughs> We needed a bit of a preach at the end there. Thanks, Katie, for doing that for us. <laughs> no, but it's so true. Let's just get back to the basic. And let's not be afraid of the mess. We, we can be comfortable with that. It's okay to be in the... It's okay not to be in the black and white. It's okay It's okay to just sit with it and, and be comfortable with also not knowing. And for some of us, we might not have entered into the conversations. You know, we might just have started that journey and... And it's okay to also say, I'm not ready <laughs> yet to talk about this. I need to educate myself more. I need to, to study and I need to fill my life with other voices because I've, you know, I've only seen one perspective. I, I was there once, you know, where I was not ready to talk about it. And that's okay too. And I think it's important to acknowledge that, that we are at different starting points. We are in different contexts. Um, Jesus simplifies it. We can always come back to him. Um, but it's okay that it's messy and, and we can live with that. And I truly thank you for this conversation, for this space, for this dialogue and for all of you um, for just bringing yourselves to the table because you, you made yourself vulnerable and shared some of your story. And I just pray God's protection over that as well in your life. Uh, and for those of you who are listening, whether you're part of the rainbow community or have children who are uh, identifying um, in diverse ways and I just want to say thank you for sticking with it and thank you because I think there is that stubbornness within a lot of people and I just pray that God will honour that in your lives and as a member of the Salvation Army and as an officer uh, I just want to take this opportunity as well to just be uh, honest about the failings that the church have done and say I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the way that I've treated people in the way that I shouldn't have in the, in my life uh, because of ignorance, uh, but also for the way that the church has been so ignorant and so silent on so many ways. And I want to say thank you to all of those brave people who have gone on that incredibly hard journey of discovery. And um, I just want to thank you for doing that together with as a, as a community within the Salvation Army, because we are richer because of you, we are better because of you, and we need you. So um, I just want to acknowledge that and say uh, thank you. And um, 
yeah, let's just bless each other and say, see you soon. And thank you for listening in. And if you want to get in, ca- in touch, just get on the includedpage.com, write to us, speak to us. Uh, we're on Facebook, Included. Um, just search for that. And we really value your conversation back to us uh, because that shapes and forms how we think and what we see is needed. Uh, But also we are happy to help and support you within conversations that you might have in your local contexts. So uh, stay in touch. And thank you so much from the Included team and from all of us. Thank you so much. God bless. Bye bye. (laughs) 